we're in the middle of a series called Red Letter Prayers. And what we're doing is we're looking at, at, at uh, prayers that Jesus prayed. And last week we kicked it off by looking at the Lord's Prayer. And uh, if you'll remember, uh, the disciples saw Jesus prayed and they, they said, we, we've studied prayer all of our lives. We've looked at how to pray all of our lives, but we've never seen anybody pray like that. Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus affirmed their request by sharing with them and, and with us uh, the Lord's Prayer, teaching us how to pray. And we, we walked through that uh, last week. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And we, we camped out on the next part. Your will be done. And if you'll remember, we said, God, our desire is that our will would get out of the way. And your will would be done in our lives. God, our life is a blank check. We're just going to set it down at your feet. You can do with it whatever you want. That's our desire. That's what we learn from you. And so last week we looked at that. We looked at, at, at giving our lives from Jesus. Learning from Jesus. Giving our lives as, as an empty blank check for God to do what he wills. In our hearts and in our lives. God, if you want me... To climb the corporate ladder, I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. You tell me to stop, I'm going to stop. God, my life is a blank check. You can do whatever you want with it. If Jesus were here this morning, I think he would say, Now, I'm going to show you in the text that we're going to look at this morning that I practiced what I preached. Part of my prayer, part of what I taught you is that my life and that your lives as followers of me, Jesus would say, as followers of me, your life is to be a blank check. Mine was a blank check. It was at the Father's disposal. He could do with it what what he pleased. And that's exactly what we see in the text this morning. Jesus practiced what he preached. His life was at the will and at the mercy of the Father. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 32. But let me set the stage for us before we jump into it. This is the last few hours of Jesus' life. He's he's, uh, about to to die on the cross. Last few hours of his life. Uh, It's been a busy week for him leading up to this point. On Sunday, he rode into a hero's welcome into Jerusalem. With palm branches being waved, the streets lined with people waiting for him to take over as king, they thought. Monday, he shows up at the temple and he cleanses it for the second time, ruffling more than a few feathers. Fast forward a couple days and Jesus brings his closest followers, his 12 disciples together, and they have a Passover meal with each other. Jesus, at the end of it, institutes the Lord's table, which we just participated in. During the Passover meal, he tells the twelve disciples, one of them is going to betray him, going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver for personal gain. They all are, they all look at each other and they're, no, it's not going to be me, no, it's not, no, Jesus, you've got that wrong, nobody's going to betray you. He says, yes, you are, one person's going to betray me. 
He turns to Peter and he says, and you are going to deny me three different times. They close out the meal, pray, and leave. Judas heads in his direction to meet with the Sanhedrin to cross the T's and dot the I's on the final plan to betray Jesus. And Jesus takes the other 11 disciples and heads out. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 32 of Mark chapter 14. And they, the 11 disciples of Jesus, went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a place that, that literally means olive press. It's the place that, that the, the neighborhood would come to press the olives and the oil would spill out. A little bit ironic, this is the exact same place that Jesus is going to be, is going to be pressed as well. So they show up in Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now Jesus had a multitude of, of followers. 120 kind of followed him around. A, a little bit fewer, 70 people uh, followed him even more, were close, more closely aligned with Jesus and with his ministry. Then he had his 12 closest. And then even inside of that, his inner circle, the three that he really, uh, that there were three closest friends here on earth. He had layers of followers. When, when uh, Mark is talking here, he's saying the, the 11 that remain have followed him into the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus tells them to sit here while I pray. Stay here while I go on a little bit more. 33. And he took Peter, James, and John, his three closest friends on this earth, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. That word troubled literally means to be overcome with horror. Jesus was overcome with horror. He was greatly distressed and troubled. This is the first time in all of the Bible, in fact, the only time in all of the Bible, that we see Jesus like this, greatly distressed, anything less than completely in control. It's the only time we see him like this. Think about the other instances where you and I would have lost control. Jesus puts the disciples on a boat, and he sends them across the sea. And a storm comes up and starts blowing the boat, the ship that they're on. Loosely described as a ship, I would add. But they're on this little boat, and the the storm comes up, and these, these seasoned sailors become frightened. And they look out, and they see what they think is a ghost walking on the water. And Jesus looks at them and says, don't be afraid. Why are you worried? What's the problem? If I were on the boat, I would have said, look around, that's the problem. If you want to see me get distressed, put me in a boat in the middle of a storm. I've been there before, growing up on the water. It's very scary. And Jesus was in complete control as he he cruised across the water. He even invited Peter to come out and walk with him. Another example that's kind of, that's almost exactly the same. Jesus is in a boat this time with his disciples sleeping in the back. And another storm comes up. And they are scared to death, and rightly so. He wakes up and he says, guys, what's the deal? What's the problem? Don't you have any faith? 
stands up on the bow of the boat. I wish I could have been here. And he raises out, I can just imagine, he raises out his hands and he, he just shouts, peace be still. And the storm listens to him and it stops. That's cool. And Jesus is in complete control of the situation. And if you've read the Gospels, you, you see time after time after time, Jesus is in complete control of, of what is a distressful situation, seemingly. Jesus is in complete control, not worried about anything. And yet, here we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Bible says that he was deeply troubled. He was horrified. He was scared to death. It goes on, 34. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He, his soul was so sorrowful. He was so distressed that he could die at any moment. That's how horrified Jesus the Messiah was. Remain here, he says to his closest friends, and watch. Verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. 36. And he said, Abba, Father, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When I read this, two things come to mind. Number one is this. This, more than any other text, lends itself to the truthfulness of God's Word. Here is the ultimate protagonist in all of the literature. In, in, in literature from the beginning of time, Jesus is the ultimate protagonist. And yet, He is shown in a very weak state of mind. He is shown, he is, he is shown at His weakest point here in the Garden of Gethsemane. The one time in his life when he seems to be losing a little bit of control. And yet the writer still included it in God's word. It lends itself to great truthfulness. Showing Jesus, the savior of the world in this life. If this was fiction, these verses would not have been included. I can assure you. The second thing that comes to mind is it really, these, these verses really beckon a question for us. And, and on the surface, I will, I will kind of preface it with this. On the surface, this question seems a little bit disrespectful, maybe even irreverent. In fact, if you grew up in church, you may have never even asked this question because it is seemingly so irreverent, so disrespectful. Here's the question. Throughout millennia, People who have come behind Jesus have faced death with great strength and great faith. And yet we read Jesus. As he faces death, he seemingly, and that's an important word, we're going to look at it here in just a second why. He seemingly face, faces death with less faith and less strength than even his followers. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Number one is Stephen. You can read his story in Acts chapter 7 this week. Stephen is the first martyr, the first reported martyr. And Stephen, the Bible says that he is preaching this truth about of Jesus and of his death, his resurrection, and how nobody can come to the Father except through him. He's preaching the gospel. And the Bible tells us that the townspeople began grinding their teeth and growling at him. My kids have done that to me, but nobody else. And yet, the town is growling and grinding their teeth at Stephen. The Bible says that they lift him up, they toss him out, they throw him out of the city, then pick up rocks and begin to stone him, even to death. The Bible also records that it looked like heaven opened up and Stephen could see into heaven. And he prayed the same prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, don't hold this sin against him. Please, Father, do not hold this sin against him. Great strength, great faith in the face of death. Another guy, another example is a guy named Polycarp. You may not want to name your kids after him, but you will pray that they have his faith. He was the bishop of Smyrna, and he stood before a judge. And the judge said, I'm going to give you one more chance to recount your faith, or to recant your faith. You got one more chance. I'm going to give you one more opportunity to turn your back on the Messiah and to recant your faith. Listen to Polycarp's response. The fire speaking to the judge who holds his life in his hands. Polycarp looks at him. I'm sure it was square in the eyes. The place was probably silent. You could hear a pin drop. The judge is probably sitting up higher with his gavel on his, on his bench. Polycarp is probably below him. Polycarp stands to speak. And this is what he says. The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. That's cool. Polycarp stands before the guy who holds, he thinks, holds his very life in his hand and ultimately does. And he says, why do you waste your breath giving me one more chance? Start the fire, turn it on up. Because I'm going to face this fire for just a little bit. And then I get to see Jesus. Don't waste your breath anymore. And Polycarp has immense faith and strength in the face of death. And you take those two examples, and I could go on and on and on of people through the millennia who have faced death with great strength and great faith. And you juxtapose them with the one that they follow, the Savior of the world. And he seems to lack the, the, the same faith and the same strength that his followers have. How on earth can this be? And when you look into the text, it becomes obvious. And when you read other theologians through the years, as I was studying for this, it became obvious that Jesus was facing something that was unique to himself. He was facing something that nobody ever would before, or had, had before or ever would again face. 
Jesus was facing, uh, was given a foretaste or, or a sample of what was to come on the cross whenever he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was given the opportunity to see what was going to come when he stretched out his hands and nails were, 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 um, were pounded into them. When he stretched out his arms and the weight of your sin and the weight of my sin was placed on his shoulders. Jesus was given a foretaste of what was to come. The son had had a perfect relationship. Walked in perfect step with his father. Who is one? I don't understand it. I cannot explain it. Yet I know it's still true. They were one and the same, yet two distinct beings. Making up two of the three uh, uh, members of the tri- of the triune God. And Jesus the Son had walked in perfect lockstep with, with the Father for all of eternity. Time could not even hold their relationship. Forever and ever and ever. What theologians call, they, they dance the perfect dance in perfect harmony with one another. Walking in lockstep forever and ever and ever. When Jesus stepped into the garden, the Father allowed him to see to the cross. And Jesus realized, I believe, based on the text, for the very first time, that that relationship, for a time, was going to be severed. When Jesus stretched out his arms, and the weight of sin from this world was placed on him, The relationship with his father that he had known forever was going to be cut off. And it was almost too much for the son to bear. For all of eternity, he had turned to the father in perfect relationship, in perfect harmony. And Jesus realized that when he was on the cross and he turned to his father, and the father's place was going to be wrath and darkness, brokenness. Because of your sin and because of mine. And it was almost too much for the Son to bear. And so Jesus comes to the Father and he says, God, the Father, if there is any other way, if there's any other avenue, if you can redeem people, if you can put them back into relationship, with yourself in any other way than breaking your relationship with me. Father, please make it happen because I am dreading not having you to turn to. Father, I am dreading having the weight of the sin of this world, your sin and my sin, placed on my shoulders and my relationship with you broken before it's defeated once and for all. Father, if there's any other way, make it happen. Then he does. And he practices what he's taught and he's preached. But your will be done. Father, my life is a blank check. Set at your feet. You can do with it whatever you desire. That's what Jesus is going through. That is the weight that he's carrying when he's overcome 
I would say surprisingly, based on his reaction. But he's overcome surprisingly with his grief. Well, at least his friends are around when he realizes the horror that he is about to take on. Look at what happens when he turns to his friends in the next verse. He came and he found him distressed, horrified. He found him sleeping. Who needs, who needs friends? They're going to act like that. But he found him sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 39, and he went away and prayed, saying the same words, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want my relationship with you severed. If there's any other way, make it happen. But not my will, yours be done. He comes back to his friends again. They're a great support. Again he came and he found them sleeping. And their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. They were sleeping again. A second time. Comes back in verse 41. And he came to them a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and still taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we know how the story ended. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. He was arrested, tried illegally multiple times, scourged with a cat of nine tails, and crucified. Bearing the weight your sin, my sin, and of sinners throughout the millennia. <clears throat> the question I had as I was wrestling through this text was, why did God give Jesus a sample, a foretaste of what was to come? I mean, isn't that kind of dangerous? I mean, wouldn't it have been a little bit safer, a lot safer, to wait until Jesus was safely secured to the cross to show him what he was facing? Wouldn't that have been safer? I mean, after all, Jesus is all by himself. Jesus, it's him and the Father. The disciples are asleep. The soldiers have not yet arrived. Jesus could have walked when he realized what he was about to face. He could have said, nope, I can't do this. I am not submitting to the will of the Father. This is too much. And walked. And nobody could have stopped. Wasn't that a little bit dangerous of the Father to reveal this? When Jesus was all by himself? And the answer, of course, is yes. And I think that's exactly the point. The Prince of Preachers, Jonathan Edwards, put, put it this way. God brought him to the mouth of the furnace, to its raging flame, so he could see where he was going, so he could voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was when he took that cup on the cross, so that his love for us, infinitely more wonderful, and his obedience to God, infinitely more perfect. 
Jesus willingly submitted to the will of the Father because he loved you and he was obedient to his dad. And that was the most important thing for him. He wanted to do the will of the Father, no matter the cost. And this morning, if you know Christ, there is nothing less that is demanded of you. Every day, in, in, in the broken, best but sinful way that you can, you must, there is nothing less demanded. You must come before the Lord and say, God, today, my life is a blank check. You can do with it whatever you want. Your will in my life is the most important thing. And if you tell me to leave, I'll leave. If you tell me to stay, I'll stay. If you tell me to, to, to move my job, I'm going to move my job. If you tell me to move my family, I'll move my family. Father, if you tell me to be the pastor of Wellspring till the day that I die, I'll be the pastor of Wellspring till the day that I die. If you tell me to leave tomorrow, I will pack my things up and I will move. God, my life is a blank check and it's all yours. You can do with it whatever you will. And as best as I can, as much influence as I can, my lives, the lives of my kids are exactly the same way. My parents, I've said this before, not my parents, my mom specifically and my Sunday school teachers, they meant well. But I think they were wrong when they said, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Unfortunately, it's not true. It's not the safest place to be. In fact, sometimes it's the most dangerous place on earth to be. But there is no better place. There is no more fulfilling place. There is no place that, I know this is bad English, but it's gooder for your life. And brings the Father more glory, which is the ultimate purpose of our lives. Brings the Father more glory than being in the center of His will. And as I've said a couple times, if you know Christ this morning, nothing less is demanded. Let's pray. Father, this morning, it is our collective prayer for those that sit here and know you, have a relationship with you. It is our collective prayer to set our lives on the altar of your feet, on the altar at your feet, and give them to you. No strings attached. For your will to be done in our lives. That, Lord, is a scary prayer. And Lord, in, 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 a broken, in our brokenness, in our sin-stained lives, it's imperfect. And we know that. Yet, it's still our desire because we want to know you. And follow in your son's Example. Jesus, I thank you for submitting to the will of your dad. Allowing your relationship that had been 
in lockstep forever and ever and ever to be severed because of my sin. It's not something I'll ever get my arms around on this side of eternity. But I thank you for it. In your name I pray. Amen.